everyone, and welcome to The Circle Opens, a podcast devoted to a chapter-by-chapter review of Stephen King's The Stand. So today we'll be tackling Chapter 3 of Book 1, Captain Trips, Um, but I also want to give you a really quick review of a book I read last weekend um, called This Dark Chest of Wonders, 40 Years of Stephen King's The Stand, that was put together by Andy Burns uh, last year for Cemetery Dance. And before we dive into both of those things, um, I wanted to touch upon the question that I put out there during last week's episode. And I asked you guys, is there a King story, whether it be a novel or a short story, that you would like to see adapted either as a movie or a television series? And I got some really fun responses to this, and I wanted to share a few with you. Insomnia seemed to be a popular choice. Um, Insomnia, of course, taking place in Derry, Maine, King's fictional town, probably made famous uh, by it. King Collector 19 said that he found Ralph Roberts, uh, who's the main the main protagonist in Insomnia, to be a lovable character. And Jen remarked that she would like to see Morgan Freeman in the lead role of Ralph. Uh, Angela just finished and chose Duma Key, wanting to see it brought to the big screen, while Gath said that, that they thought it would actually work better as a television series. Um, given the scope of the novel of it, I think that would actually be pretty fantastic being able to work. They w- you would be able to work in more of the characters um, and the interludes and what a commitment that would be. But um I think I agree there. It's just so difficult to really give respect to King's longer works in the form of a two to four hour movie. And I mean, obviously, that's what's hindered The Stand being adapted uh, again for so many years, um, even dialing back to the 1980s when they tried with Romero. Um, You know, it's such a long novel and there's just so much uh, to unpack there. And it's just it's it's impossible to do it in a, you know, and I appreciate what they're doing with it chapter one and chapter two. I'm really glad we got two movies and I like how they kind of cut it into the first movie being the younger kids and the second movie uh, being the adults with some flashbacks. I think it's, I'm hoping it's going to work really well. Um, But at the same time, you know, they had to cut so much that made it so fantastic as a novel. Excuse me. So, uh, yeah, if someday they decide to bring it to the smaller screen, um, like most King adaptations, I would like to avoid network television for that and uh, stick it on a uh, streaming site or, you know, HBO, Showtime, um, those places where you don't have to really censor yourself, um, you know, and being a Stephen King novel, the worst thing you can do to his novels is censor them. I think it takes away something um, in the adaptations when they have to do that. Anyway, back to the question. Um, Mariana wants to see her favorite story of everything's eventual come to life. And she also mentioned um, Under the Dome being remade as an actual adaptation of the book. And um, I know Under the Dome... uh, That seems to be one of those novels where, you know, most people seem to like it, but they're very divided on the ending. Personally, personally, I like the ending, um, but I think that the show completely uh, gutted King's novel. And it was really disappointing because I think that first episode of Under the Dome had so much potential. And then it just went off the rails. Um, I felt like it belonged on the CW or... (laughs) 
something like that where it's just like, what is happening? Um, it wasn't even a good kind of off the rails. It was just unwatchable. So I do agree with Mariana. I think uh, having Under the Dome being remade as a series that follows the novel could be really fascinating. Michelle chose an updated version of The Running Man, uh, The Running Man being a Richard Bachman novel, and where, like, Under the Dome, it would be a faithful adaptation. Um, I never saw the Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. Um, I think that was, was that the 80s? I'm not sure, but I never saw it. Um, I heard it was horrible, um, and I'm not a big fan of Arnie. I'm sorry. <laughs> so I never saw it, um, and I have actually never read the book. Uh, it's it's definitely on my to-be-read list for King. It's just, it's it's way down on my priority list at the moment. Um, and Michelle also mentioned from a Buick 8, which I believe was announced last summer as being turned into a film written and directed by William Brent Bell. But I haven't been able to find any information, any updated information on that one. Um, I went online and took a look, and Bell has a couple movies in post-production, but there's nothing yet on From a Buick 8. So I want to say thank you to everyone who chimed in with their choices. I'm sure uh, this is a question that plenty of King fans discuss on a daily basis. Uh, But he has such an expansive bibliography. Um, There's just so many stories to choose from, so... Uh, personally, I know last week I said needful things and I've been listening to the audiobook of the skeleton crew and I just finished, uh, what was it? Kane rises up and out of the stories I've read so far, um, or listened to, I guess, uh, I would really like to see, uh, the monkey. I don't, I assume that that could probably be a hour and a half, two hour movie, depending on how they do it. But that, that story really stuck with me, probably more so than The Mist. Um, so I was I was thinking about that I was as I was driving home listening to the end of it. I just think that would be a really fascinating, creepy short story uh, turned into a movie. So that's my choice for this week, and I'm sure next week I'd probably have something different. Okay, so before we dive into Chapter 3 of The Stand, um, I just want to give a little review um, about this book I read in... Over the weekend, I was finally able to sit down um, and read This Dark Chest of Wonders by Andy Burns. And for those who don't know, uh, This Dark Chest of Wonders was a publication from Cemetery Dance detailing 40 years of The Stand. Um, It covered everything from King's initial inspirations of the novel uh, through the uncut edition, the um, abandoned uh, George A. Romero adaptation that they tried to get off the ground, the audiobook the miniseries, uh, music from the miniseries, and the comic adaptation from Marvel. It was a one-time printing, uh, limited to a 1,000 copies, signed by Burns himself, and it sold out fairly quickly. Um, I was just lucky enough to uh, be able to get a copy ordered, and I received my copy in uh, February earlier this year. Um, but with work and my, you know, my kids in school and so many other books on my priority list, I just hadn't found the time to sit down and read it properly. Um, but thanks to a lovely three day weekend, uh, last week, I decided it would be fun to finally read this book and, uh, review it here on the podcast. And thankfully reading this book was not a chore. And I'm going to give you the quick official synopsis, uh, from Cemetery Dance. It reads, 
In September 1978, Stephen King published The Stand, a massive post-apocalyptic story that captured the imagination of his growing legion of constant readers, introducing them to his ultimate villain, Randall Flagg. Over the course of time, the tale of good and evil only gained in popularity, leading to the 1990 publication of The Stand, Complete and Uncut, which gave audiences the author's original vision for his novel. In this dark chest of wonders, 40 years of Stephen King's The Stand, Andy Burns tells the story behind the story of King's enduring opus and delves deep into its various incarnations. The unfilmed George A. Romero adaptation, the 1994 ABC miniseries, the audiobook, and Marvel's comic, Marvel Comics adaptation. Included are exclusive interviews with Stephen King experts Bev Vincent, Robin Firth, Mick Garris, Jamie Sheridan, W.G. Snuffy Walden, Grover Gardner, Ralph Macchio, Roberto Aguirre Sacasa, and Mike Perkins. This dark chest of wonders, 40 years of the stand, delivers a complete and uncut look into one of Stephen King's most enduring achievements. The book uh, begins with a history of how Stephen King came to write The Stand, uh, his inspirations, his motivations, um, a lot of the stuff that we talked about on episode one of this podcast. Um, there was some more insight um, and some more detail about um, all of those things, um, which I just devoured. And then uh, Burns gets into the interviews, and the interviews, um, they're a lot of fun. It's interesting to get the perspective of this novel from his fans who were lucky enough to work uh, on the novel, whether it was um, the adaptations or the comic book, uh, even the music for the miniseries uh, with uh, W.G. Snuffy Walden. Uh, we get to hear about the adaptation from uh, director George A. Romero that never came to fruition, the process in which Mick Garris came to cast and direct the miniseries, as well as some tidbits from the uh, the creative crew that came together to create the stand in comic form. Um, and that took them, of course, you know, that went over a course of three years. So there are a couple chapters devoted solely to Randall Flagg. Um, and uh, this was probably my favorite part of the book because we got to hear from these various people what they believed Flag's motivations were and um, what he was. Was he the devil, just a conduit for evil, and perhaps simply just an opportunist with narcissistic tendencies? Um, King himself talks about, um, not directly in an interview, but they mentioned King had mentioned in various interviews that he found uh, motivation for Flag and, you know, serial killers. And uh, he talks about how he feels like these people who do these horrible things are asked when they're finished, why did you do it? And most of the time they say, I don't know. Um, and he believes, you know, the devil or Satan has in interjected himself into these people to have them do these terrible things, um, which I found to be really fascinating, a very fascinating uh, theory. <laughs> um, so there's also the acknowledgement uh, from these people who uh, Andy Burns interviewed as to uh, what made the stand so terrifying for them? And it seems like a lot of the uh, the answers were the same. And it was the fact that the stand uh, could happen both in 1978 when the novel was released to now. Uh, the end of the world, whether it be from nuclear war, biological war warfare, or just something so simple as a super flu. I mean, it could 
could happen. And who knows, you know, even in 2019, it feels somewhat likely, (laughs) which is terrifying. Um, But as a fan of The Stand, there's really nothing I love more than discussing the story with other people, Um, whether it be just somebody who's read the book but might not have read uh, much else from Stephen King to the hardcore constant readers um, who either love or dislike this book. Uh, And this Dark Chest of Wonders really touched into how I feel about The Stand from a fan viewpoint, Um, especially with what it meant to me when I first read it when I was 13 and what it still means to me, even as I'm rereading it this summer with all of you. And uh, I won't go into a super long, detailed, uh, specific review um, chapter by chapter here because it's a nonfiction book, uh, and I would really, really recommend uh, reading it if you can find a copy. Uh, I know there are some physical copies for sale on places like eBay, but I believe Amazon uh, has a Kindle version for $5. So Andy Burns did a really wonderful job piecing together this book. Uh, And even if there's nothing within it that you didn't already know about The Stand, um, give it a read anyway and enjoy these interviews like I did. All right. So a quick recap from last week. We met Fran Goldsmith in Agunquit, Maine. Franny is a 21-year-old woman who is meeting her boyfriend, Jess, at a local beach where she tells him she's pregnant. And the conversation, as we remember, does not go well. And at the end of the chapter, Fran leaves Jess at the pier, still undecided as to what to do with her baby. So from Agunquit, Maine, we are back in Arnett, Texas for Chapter 3. And it's the morning after Campion's death. And Norm Brewitt, if you remember, he was one of the six men who uh, witnessed Campion's, uh, I wouldn't say he witnessed Campion's death, but he was there when Campion uh, wrecked his Chevy into Haps, Texaco's gas pumps. And right away, we get some insight into the kind of guy Norm is when he wakes up. Uh, He's been sleeping until 10 in the morning, um, and right away he's yelling at his kids uh, for making too much noise. Um, He gets out of bed, opens the door, and screams at them. You know, and he's torn between this heartache at seeing his sons and clothes that were found at the Salvation Army, uh, but also rage that tempts him to walk out there and beat the living shit out of them, as the book claims. And Norm is a little pissed off at his wife, Lila, for not hanging up his clothes Uh, And when he yells for her, she doesn't answer. He supposes he could ask his kids where their mother went, but Norm has a headache. He's feeling quite queasy, like he's got a hangover. Whereas uh, chapter one ended with Campion dying in the ambulance, but Norm's recollection, um, this point of view from Norm, takes us back to the night before. And we get to see from his memory what happened uh, after Hap and the ambulance took Campion away. And the state police showed up to the Texaco, and they took uh, they took care of Sally and baby Levon's bodies and the car. And Vic Palfrey, who was also there with Norm and the others, the, he gave the police a statement for all six men. And when the undertaker, who was also the county coroner, as probably happens quite a bit in these small towns, uh, he would not speculate on what killed Campion and his family. Um, As Vic mentioned in Chapter 1, he was afraid it could have been cholera. But the coroner is quick to put an end to this because he instructs the men it was not cholera. And if he uh, 
they are not to go around telling people that it could have been cholera because it will just scare everybody. The coroner tells them that they can read about the cause of death in the paper once the autopsy is performed. And Norm Brewitt is a man of little patience, uh, and it seems like his aches and pains aren't making it any better. Uh, he gets dressed and wanders into the kitchen uh, where the song, where a song is playing on the radio. And uh, the song is called Baby, Can You Dig Your Man? And Norm instantly dislikes the fact that a country radio station is playing rock and roll. Uh, he turns off the music and finds a note from his wife that reads, Dear Norm, Sally Hodges says she needs somebody to sit her kids this morning and says she'll give me a dollar. I'll be back for lunch. There's sausage if you want it. I love you, honey. Lila. The note itself is uh, very poorly written, uh, plenty of misspellings, and that kind of gives us an idea as to what kind of education Lila Brewitt has received. Um, and we know that Lila is unemployed. Uh, Norm initially thought maybe she had gone down to the employment office when he woke up. Um, and he's pretty uh, upset at her for babysitting for a mere dollar. And, okay, I know the book was written in 1978. And then King updated everything uh, to fit with the 90s, 1990. Uh, but, oh, boy, you know, a dollar's such a ripoff. <laughs> I have three kids, and I, you know, I know that I would be paying a babysitter a heck of a lot more money, even if it were 1990. Um, this also, but, you know, this also shines light on the Brewitt's financial situation, that it that seems to be just something... <sighs> Financial hardship in Arnett is not unusual, and Lila is desperate enough for money that she'll babysit for this one dollar. Um, rather than appreciate that his wife is doing this, to, you know, to bring some money into the household, Norm is uh, pretty angry. Uh, she's off babysitting, and he's stuck with their two boys. And this is one thing that drives me nuts, probably more so now because um, I'm married and have kids, is... I've had that question given to me before when I am going to go to a movie with my sisters or I'm going out just, you know, with friends and people seem, oh, oh, your husband's babysitting tonight. No, he's not babysitting. He's being a father and he's watching his kids. Um, it's just that's a very interesting uh, point of view from Norm that uh, she's left him with their own, you know, his two boys. Um, and his, his thought process is, uh, quote, by God, it was hard times when a man had to sit home and wipe his kids' noses so his wife could go and scratch out a lousy buck that wouldn't even buy them a gallon of gas. That was hard fucking times. Yeah, father and husband of the year right here. Poor Norm. Um, no. So they, uh, Norm realizes they don't have a lot of food in the house. But you know what? He's not feeling hungry anyway. He doesn't have much of an appetite. He just wants some coffee. And our look into Norm's situation um, comes to an end just before the water begins to boil. And he has to grab his snot rag out of his back pocket to catch a sneeze. And uh, the chapter, not the chapter, but the paragraph ends, it never occurred to him to think of the phlegm that had been running out of that fellow campion's pump the night before. And with that, we uh, jump over back to Hap's Texaco, where Hap is working on a car with Vic Palfrey there for company. And they're joined shortly after by a state patrolman who just happens to be Hap's cousin, Joe Bob Brentwood. And is that not a name that is the epitome of small town Texas in 1990? <laughs> Joe Bob. Not Joe, 
not Bob, it's Joe Bob. And he is referred to Joe Bob for the rest of the chapter. Uh, as Hap is going to go out to greet Joe Bob, uh, we read that he's sneezing. And he's figuring he's just got a summer cold. Uh, Joe Bob is there for gas, but he has uh, ulterior motives for being there. He wants to warn Hap and Vic of some news. Uh, he's not supposed to be there, but family is family, and he wants to at least give his cousin a bit of a heads up as to what is about to happen. Joe Bob explains to Vic and Hap that some guys from the health department would be soon would be by soon to talk to them. Uh, Vic is now convinced that whatever Campion had was cholera, and the coroner was just trying to shut them up. But Joe Bob can't confirm nor deny this because he just doesn't know. Uh, what he does know is that the coroner, Finnegan, brought a doctor in to look at Campion's body. And from there, they called another doctor and soon got on the phone with someone in Houston. A uh, pathologist arrived outside a brain tree where the ambulance had been taking Campion before he died. Um, Joe Bob continues on that the pathologist had been in a room with the bodies of Campion and his family for hours before they called the Atlanta Plague Center. Um, and the, the Atlanta Plague Center, also known as the uh, Center for Dis Disease Control, uh, they're sending out their own people that afternoon. And by the sounds of it, they want Vic, Hap, and the other men who were there the night when Campion died to be quarantined. Joe Bob acknowledges that the doctor and the pathologist looked scared. And um, just from Joe Bob's point of view, his perspective of what he's talking to them about, we get uh, a little bit more information about Campion. Um, not much, but his belongings uh, reveal that he was from San Diego, although his license was expired. He had a bank card, which was also expired, and his Army ID said that he was signed up through 1997. So they, of course, assume that Campion went AWOL. Uh, Joe Bob says Hap can warn the other men of what was happening as long as they kept his name out of it. While Joe Bob is cashing out, Hap sneezes again. And like Hap, Joe Bob figures that he's just got a summer cold. But Vic, Vic is, if you know, in the first chapter, Vic seemed to be one of the only ones with uh, somewhat of a brain between his ears, uh, along with Stu. Uh, Vic is the one to finally realize and mention that maybe it's something more. Maybe it's not the summer, uh, summer cold and it's something that Campion had. Uh, because uh, Vic woke up feeling sick. He had a headache and he was sneezing and had plenty of snot. This unnerves the other two men, and Joe Bob tentatively suggests that Hap close down the Texaco for a day. It's here that Hap realizes that he also woke up feeling the way that Vic felt, and while it would be easy to pass it off as a cold, he thinks about the fact that before Campion arrived, he was feeling just fine. Um, I really like this bit of this chapter. It's getting things rolling. Um, we're getting some information as to what's happening um, outside of uh, this little bubble in our net um, with doctors, pathologists, the Atlanta Plague Center getting involved. Um, Vic and Hap have every right to be unnerved by this, uh, maybe a little frightened. Um, we're not, still not sure what's going to happen, but it doesn't look good. And especially the fact that the last bit of this chapter uh, takes us to Sally Hodges' house, where Norm's wife, Lila, is babysitting. Um, she is babysitting three kids. They're all fairly young, six, four, and 18 months. 
two are sleeping and Bert, the oldest, is outside playing in the yard. And yes, Lila is getting $1 for doing this, but we also kind of start to uh, realize that maybe she had her own ulterior motives for taking this babysitting job um, because she really likes Sally Hodges's house. Uh, Sally Hodges has a color TV that Sally's husband, Ralph, bought when money wasn't so tight in Arnett. And this allows Lila to watch her soap operas in color. Uh, she also loves Sally's uh, paintings that are hung up in nice frames around the house. Uh, paintings of um, Sally's hobby, which is a paint-by-number picture, or paint-by-number pictures of Jesus Christ. Uh, <laughs> Lila's favorite is a oil paint-by-number picture, uh, or I guess painting, of The Last Supper. Um, it kind of, oh man, the mental image that this gave me, I know that in any future adaptation of this book, they'll probably cut this scene. Um, I don't know how necessary it really is time-wise, but I would love to see Sally Hodges's house, uh, covered in paint by number pictures of Jesus. Um, it kind of reminds me of, uh, some houses I had been in when I was younger, uh, where people had those velvet paintings of Jesus Christ or he, Viking Jesus with the blonde hair and blue eyes. Yeah. That, that kind of reminded me here of, uh, Sally Hodges's house a little bit. So this, this particular scene doesn't last very long, um, but it's very effective. Uh, Lila's, Soap opera is interrupted by the 18-month-old waking up in her bedroom coughing, and she seems to be choking on something because she's turning purple. Uh, Lila, being a mother of two, uh, reacts quickly and slaps uh, the baby's back uh, named Cheryl um, until Cheryl unleashes a large wad of yellow phlegm. Um, baby Cheryl feels better and goes back to sleep. Uh, crisis averted. But as Lila is cleaning up the mess, she's thinking to herself that she's never seen a baby cough that much snot before. And right when she sits back down to finish The Young and the Restless, she lights a new cigarette and she begins to cough herself. And that is the end of chapter three. It's a short chapter, um, but things are starting to happen. Um, not that they weren't already, but this is where some of that terror starts to creep in. Um, Norm is wakes up sick. Hap and Vic have woken up sick. Uh, and Hap's cousin, the state patrolman Joe Bob Brentwood, tells them that people from the Atlanta Plague Center are on their way. And then there's that very scary word, quarantine. Um, nothing, of, nothing good can come of that word, <laughs> um, especially in such a small town. Everyone who has witnessed Campion's wreck uh, and the bodies of his wife and daughter are now sick. Um, okay, well, I'm going to let's back up there. Three of them are sick. We did not we did not get to check in with uh, Tommy or Henry or Stu in this chapter. So we're not sure yet uh, what what's going on with them. But I have a feeling that we're going to find out. And I really like what King has done with this chapter. Um, it's brisk and it's necessary and it's effective. He's setting everything in motion now with these uh, officials, pathologists uh, getting involved. And if you think about it, I mean, this takes place the morning after Campion dies. Uh, there's already three of the six men sick. Uh, Norm's wife is getting sick. Sally Hodge's youngest daughter is getting sick. Uh, we don't see any insight that maybe Joe Bob has been infected. But what about the coroner? What about the doctor? What about the pathologist? Um, 
Did they take proper precautions? And will those precautions be enough against whatever uh, this sickness, this virus is? Where will it end? And will it end? We get a sense of what the officials are doing and how they feel about this, uh, all of this from Joe Bob's retelling. Um, and, you know, Joe Bob's words were very simple, but to the point, uh, they're scared. And King doesn't linger too long on these groups of people, this group of people. But just by mentioning um, their physical ailments, it's enough to kind of set you on edge. Uh, because we already know that this is not your typical summer cold. It's much, much worse. So whatever Campion had, it's contagious and it's moving fast. And next week, we're going to hit uh, chapter four, which is another short chapter, but uh, we get to meet General William Starkey. And we finally get to put a name to the virus that killed a, vac- a facility full of government scientists, as well as Charles Campion and his family, and has uh, infected a small group of people in Arnett, Texas. And uh, that brings episode three of the Circle Opens podcast to a close. And I want to thank you all for listening. It's June now, and it seems that we're going to have an eventful summer together as the super flu spreads and decimates the country. Um, If you are enjoying the podcast, um, it would be really awesome if you could leave me a rating and review on iTunes or, you know, whichever podcast app you may be listening to. Uh, If you want to send me any thoughts or feedback, feel free to drop me a line at thecircleopens at gmail.com. Nope, I'm lying. I'm lying. (laughs) It's thecirclecloses at gmail.com. And the only reason why it's not thecircleopens at gmail.com is because that email was taken when I tried to to get it. So thecirclecloses at gmail.com. I got to get used to that. Um, Easier, you can find me on social media. Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at The Circle Opens. I did get those. So I hope you all have a great day. It is uh, the beginning of June. Um, Please don't come down with a summer cold. That might turn you off at wanting to see what happens in this book. And M-O-O-N, that spells see you next week.